Welcome to the Maxworth Insights Podcast. Today, we're celebrating the anniversary of our first call pay program with the help of the physician leader who made it possible. In 2005, Winchester Medical Center, a 495-bed facility in Virginia, was at risk of losing a service line in its emergency department due to a dispute over call pay. Maxworth was brought on board to help the hospital come up with a sustainable approach to paying for call that would ease agitation and keep its ED fully staffed. At the time, Dr. Tom Oliver, a urologist who had been on staff with the hospital since 1988, was serving as medical staff president. Dr. Oliver, along with the lawyers of Horty Springer Law Firm, played an important role in developing our call pay solution. Since implementing the program in 2006 at Winchester Medical Center, Maxworth has established similar programs in hospitals and health systems throughout the country. We're proud to have been able to adapt our process to meet the needs of so many different organizations, each with its own unique sets of goals and circumstances. We're perhaps most proud that our very first program is still serving its hospital well and supporting its mission to provide the best care possible. Maxworth senior partners Steve Worthy and Max Hawkenberry sat down with Dr. Oliver to talk about the early days of the program and what makes it such an enduring and valuable asset for Winchester Medical Center. We hope you enjoy their conversation. So Dr. Oliver, it's great, always great to be with you and it's uh, sometimes hard to believe it's actually been uh, over 15 years uh, since we first met. Max and I had the privilege of meeting you in this, I think it was about the summer of 2005. And at that time, you were president of the medical staff and, and uh, you were leading a group of uh, physician leaders in a discussion around the topic of call pay. And uh, we just, uh, as we start and begin our uh, time together visiting with, uh, with each other today, I thought we'd start by uh, going down uh, memory lane and talk about uh, kind of what drove the need uh, for the creation uh, of this thing that ultimately was called the attending faculty plan uh, or sometimes called the call pay solution uh, at Winchester Medical Center uh, there in Winchester, Virginia. Well, can you tell us a little bit about uh, sort of the, uh, uh, the origin, uh, where it came from? Uh, sure, Steve. So back in the early 2000s, uh, Winchester Medical Center was facing the same problems a lot of other non-teaching hospitals were uh, in maintaining an on-call roster for the emergency room. That was the real driving factor. Uh, we saw over those several years, physicians starting to leave inpatient hospital practice, mainly because of declining reimbursement for what was becoming increasingly complex in-hospital work and the burden of call associated with that work. A number of physicians realized that they didn't really need to work in the hospital to have a successful medical practice, and they could leave the hospital and enjoy a good practice and a better quality of life. Those physicians that could left our hospital attending staff and left the on-call roster. Those of us who remained had a gradually increasing call burden because there were fewer people on the roster. And over a few years, our hospital lost its entire on-call staff of psychiatrists, oral surgeons, dentists, all of our ophthalmologists, but for one, and many internists. 
between about 2000 and 2005, our hospital patched the holes in our call model with employed psychiatrists, um, a subsidized hospitalist program, and ended up paying cash for call to maintain our level two trauma program. Unfortunately, by 2005, that led us to a problem of inequity because we now had some physicians getting paid cash for call, some who didn't have to take any call at all and had their call relieved for them by the hospice program, and the rest of us who were still taking call without any compensation, and that inequality became quite stressful, to say the least. In January of 2005, our Department of Obstetrics gave written notice to our hospital administration that they would no longer be taking call without pay. They did graciously give the hospital most of the year to uh, meet their deadline at the end of 2005. Uh, the hospital's position at the time was absolutely not. We're not paying for call. And as you pointed out, I was uh, I had the privilege of being on the medical staff uh, as medical staff president at the time. And that's that's what led to beginning it. That's what that's what started it. It was basically a letter from Stetric saying, "We're not doing this anymore." Mm. Um, to build it, we started with those two opposing camps. We had administrators saying, "No, we're not paying," and physicians saying, "We're not taking call anymore without pay." Um, we started with negotiations and a lot of very lively medical staff discussions. All of it helped a great deal because we had a strong medical staff executive committee and our medical staff were still very active in hospital, uh, hospital processes. We, we, we had mandatory medical staff meetings multiple times a year and everybody came because it was a hot topic. What triggered AFP, what triggered our deferred call comp plan, the genesis, was... Um, uh, I had the opportunity to meet with Mr. Dan Mulholland of Horty Springer at a physician leadership, physician leadership seminar with Horty Springer and asked Dan a very simple question about linking call service to a pension plan because that was the limits of my understanding. And Dan took that question about linking call service to a pension plan to you guys, to Maxworth Consulting. And then you helped us build our deferred call compensation plan. Uh, so none of it would have happened without Maxworth or Horty Springer. And more importantly, none of it would have happened without the support of our hospital board leadership and Jim Woodward, our uh, hospital president at the time. That's, that's, that's how we got started. That's how we built it. I presume that other hospitals that you've worked with have gone through similar processes. And I presume that you've had physicians involved in the construction of their their call plans? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing uh, now looking back over 15, 16 years, how many other hospitals uh, found uh, just having an alternative or having a, a discussion to discover that there were alternatives rather than those two very opposing uh, viewpoints that you described as you were talking about the genesis of it, it seemed like everyone had the administrative uh, position uh, of either not wanting to pay for call or not wanting to pay more for call, and, and physicians believing there was a, 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 a non-level playing field or a sense of 
have and have nots and, and uh, uh, sort of the cloud that went over all of it was just not the medical staff not being involved or not, not being uh, invited uh, into the discussion. And so we found that throughout the country, not, not just in Winchester, Virginia, but, and not just in Virginia, but uh, all the way from, you know, California to Maine, as they say. So Tom, can you, tell, can you tell us a little bit about the process of just building it, uh, the, the total solution, I, both the deferred compensation plan, but also how this, these ad hoc committees evolved into the, into the physician's call committee, which was given uh, support and authority by the board and by uh, leadership at Winchester Medical Center. And, and that has, by the way, continued to be uh, a functioning committee from my understanding, throughout all these 15 years. How, how did that process of building that really come about? So having a solution that was a compromise for both parties let us go forward. So the physicians knew the hospital was compromising from their point of view, and the hospital knew the physicians were compromising because what made the hospital go along was putting some strings attached to the call compensation. All the strings that are written into our call plan document, you know, the physician will be a good citizen. The physician will accept Medicare, those sorts of things. So there's strings attached to the physician's money. Um, and from the physician's point of view, they've gone, they, they realize the hospital is compromising by going from we're not paying to uh, yes, we'll pay with this deferred compensation plan because the hospital recognized that it had to work with the physicians to keep an on-call roster and that the plan has value-added features built in. We built our AFP structure and its committees from scratch. And the structure had two key points. The first one being the call committee, which is entirely physicians. And th that group determines who gets how much money, not the hospital. We also designed ours on purpose to be outside of the medical staff structure. So this has nothing to do with our staff executive committee. This is uh, a small group, five physicians, who collect data and talk about who does what and makes recommendations for how and how much the physicians are going to get paid and in what manner. That's one of the things that's most important to the physicians. The next step in the structure is the advisory board, which is the fiducial group that runs the plan and actually signs the checks. Uh, and they take information, recommendations from our physicians as to who's going to get paid how much. The hospital owns the plan, the hospital runs the plan, but the physicians provide the input as to who's going to get how much, et cetera. And that was important. That was really important. That's, that's the great insight. And, you know, from what evolved from that and, and you sharing with us and us being involved on the peripheral, what we found in that uh, is, is through your leadership and the leadership of those five members of that call committee, the focus was on fairness, on the doctrine of fairness. And fairness was built, uh, and what brought that fairness into focus uh, was not a money focus, but more of a relative burden focus. And so when your committee 
uh, putting into the hands of the physicians the, uh, the structure and the quantitative tools to look at burden through the eyes of how often is a physician actually, or, or how, how often is a member of a call panel actually coming into the ED uh, to, provide, to provide services. And, and then when they do come in, based on that typical event, what, what is the uh, clinical uh, complexity? Uh, what, is the, uh, what is the intensity of that event relative, relative to other specialties doing, uh, performing the, the on-call uh, services? And then of course, how is it relevant to what our community actually needs and community being you know, the catchment area of the hospital, but also how the hospital holds themselves out. And then finally, in your weighted hierarchy, you, you also included the, uh, the physician's uh, liability exposure. That's probably one of the easier quantitative matrices because you could look right at uh, the shelf rate of medical malpractice liability insurance. So for us, what we saw was a fairness doctrine, a, a principle-based approach where you're looking at fairness, you're looking at transparency, and you're doing it from a physician's voice, which is really the only people that could make that assessment. And the interesting thing, uh, Tom, from us is how isolated uh, doctors are in the, in the awareness of what each other are going through. So until the physicians came together as a committee and started sharing and having the input of the emergency room physician or the input of now of a hospitalist or someone that sees it more globally, until you have that input, you really don't have a realistic understanding of what it's like to be on call. And, and it's interesting uh, to us and looking now 15 years out, how every hospital that has adopted this approach, they've used the same criteria because they thought that was as comprehensive of a way of determining fairness. Uh, and they've, they've also all, all used the same weighting formula for those criteria of frequency and, and, uh, and complexity and need and, and liability. So I, I, think, I think you wrote a good document there and that's kind of what the future uh, became uh, for many hospitals around the country because of the work you did. So I, I, I think you're right, Steve. We, we did work hard on that. Um, between the summer of 05 and October of 05, that's when those ad hoc committees sat down and basically said, we, we want the physicians to be in charge of determining what call pay is. The hospital president was thrilled to not have to make that decision. So, so Jim Woodward was very happy to say, hey, that's one less thing I have to do. You guys can do it. He gave us a global budget. We were told, and that's where we needed professional advice from guys like you and Dan Mulholland, is how, how do you do that legally and in a structured manner? We got some excellent advice and we did know that we had to have criteria for deciding who's going to get how much money, quite frankly. 
is what it boiled down to. And we used four main criteria for a burden of call because burden of call is what you're talking about. It's really a burden. And you're right. Nobody knows what it's like until you're doing it yourself. And we had four things that were important. How often do you get called? Frequency. When you get called, how intense is the work you, the service you provide? When you provide that service, how risky is it to you? Are you doing brain surgery? Are you making a, doing a, a phone call? Um, and um, how badly do we need you? And that, that boils down to asking the emergency room physician, how badly do you need this service on your, on your call roster? Can you run your emergency room without this service? Uh, and in addition to that, a bonus point is, as you alluded to, is your hospital actively recruiting for that specialty? So those four basic criteria with a bonus point for recruitment were the criteria we used. We assigned a value point, a value scale to each of those four criteria and a score to that, which we called the AFP call score. And um, we had some very bright physicians on that first call committee who came up with a number of really cool ideas that end up being written down in our policy manual in our plan document. How do physicians feel about it now? They feel pretty good about it in general. At first, there was a lot of skepticism. At first, they trusted this as much as we trust anything else of the hospital administrator's promises, uh, which isn't very much. Um, there are still a few physicians who think they could get better on-call payment if they negotiated for cash on their own, but that group of physicians has gotten much smaller over time. Uh, there's still a few people that resent the strings attached to their money, but that's also gotten smaller over time. As, as you can imagine, handing out substantial checks to physicians over the years has helped make a lot of believers. Have you seen that other hospitals have had to go through major growing pains or are they able to take advantage of a more or less, uh, here's, how we, here's how you can do it. Uh, try it out. Here's our car call pay solution. Does that make it go easier? Or do they still struggle in the beginning? Um, um, they use the model that your medical staff created. They use that model as kind of the starting point. And then each hospital adds their own kind of personality to it. Uh, it doesn't, it isn't warped very much. It is very similar. You would recognize it, but each hospital is a little bit different. And each hospital has a, a different take on what is the, the burden of call. But they use uh, the work of the 2005 call committee as the starting point. And then what we have seen is the results that Winchester has achieved over the years, the financial results that we see in that uh, the per diems have changed very little over a decade, decade and a half. Um, and retention of a medical staff is much greater than what, say, the New England Journal of Medicine survey of physician turnover would, would uh, indicate. We have found those benefits to the hospital and to the medical staff to be, uh, to be universal. Are you aware of any influence that this program has had on recruiting? physicians to the hospital or to to the community uh, so yes i am mostly i'm impressed with the uh data max mentioned with 
comparing nationwide re physician retention rates to our rates, um, I, I don't I don't know that data. It's hard for me to know who hasn't left. Um, but I do know that the physicians who do leave typically leave within 18 to 24 months of arriving here. And if they leave, it's not because of call compensation. They're leaving for other reasons. They're leaving for social reasons. It's either a poor fit in the practice they've joined or their spouse doesn't like, or they, either the physician or their family doesn't like Winchester or has to leave Winchester for family reasons. So physicians aren't leaving because they aren't being paid enough. They're leaving for cultural and social reasons. And there's nothing you can do to stop them from leaving. There's no amount of money that will make them stay. What the three-year minimum vest period has done has postponed those departures. So after 18 months, a young physician decides, hey, I, I can't stay here for whatever reason. I got to go, but I've got a three-year vest. They'll give notice and then stay for another year and a half to get to that vest period, which helps only in that it gives the hospital more time to re recruit a replacement. So there's some longitudinal stability to recruiting that way. I don't know about if you guys have noticed or not, but I think young physicians today are very sophisticated financially. They, 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 these young men and women are, are in the know with respect to financial things, uh, way better than I was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And when you explain the concept of deferred compensation for call to them, they get it quickly. They like it quickly. And if they are looking between hospital A and hospital B, and we've got deferred comp for call in our, uh, in our plan, our recruitment packet, that's a plus. That's a definite plus for us. Um, yeah, recruitment is really tough now. And having this in our favor, I think has been beneficial. Young physicians have told me, hey, you know, I, I like this. This is good. Yeah, as we uh, as we travel around the country uh, over the last fifteen years, and those hospitals that have implemented, uh, as uh, Max alluded to earlier, um, you know, we compare the retention uh, as as best as we can calculate it, and basically that's just looking at participants that are in a, in the program, how many of those participants leave the program uh, across the nation. And I, I don't know that, that this program can take full credit for all of that, but I think what you're looking for is, a, as they say in, in other things, a slight edge. Uh, you know, if you just have a slight edge today, that can be uh, a real difference maker in recruiting. Uh, and as you, as you pointed to, Dr. Oliver, in, in Winchester has in their, uh, in their, benefit suite, uh, they're able to point to something that's unique. Uh, not every hospital across the country has this. Not every uh, medical staff is, is uh, willing to work with administration and administration work with the medical staff to do something that's valuable for physicians. And so those that don't have this type of program can't point to it. And uh, those that have adopted the program can. And we have seen uh, actual data evolve over 15 years where, like Winchester, those who have employed the, uh, the, the program 
uh, have experienced uh, a higher retention rate and have pointed to the fact that this unique uh, benefit plan has been attractive. So, so as, as you think about the enduring success, and we'll call it successful because it, almost anything that lasts over 15 years, you'd have to say would be successful. And I know there have been tweaks and, and, and uh, et cetera over the years, but just thinking about that, what would you point to, uh, Dr. Oliver, as one or two things that have allowed this to stand the test of time? So, yes, I, th- I think our plan has been successful, defined by longevity. And the things that have allowed it to be so durable are its flexibility. Uh, you alluded to tweaks along the way. We've made some substantial changes to the plan here in Winchester, some, some major changes that you did for us, and some s- significant tweaks in how we administered among ourselves as physicians based upon changes in our hospital practices and hospital culture between 2005 and 2020. We, our hospital staff doesn't function the same way as it did 15 years ago. So we've been able to rewrite our policy manual, rewrite our operating rules ourselves. The physicians have done that um, and adapted over time. That's one reason that it's still successful is we've been able to adapt to changes. And you guys have been able to make the plan more physician-friendly. The plan is 10 times more physician-friendly now than it was when we started. I mean, it was physician-friendly then, and it's really physician-friendly now. I presume it's going to keep running into the future. I presume that you've seen the plan successful in other hospitals. I don't know if you have any other sites that have been running for as long as Winchester or close to it. Um, have you seen similar successes elsewhere? Yeah, we have. We've seen, um, uh, you know, the enduring success uh, comes with, um, I, I think, the support of administration over time. The interesting thing to us is that by by the wisdom of, of Winchester Medical Center and Valley Health Board, putting this uh, structure together for it to be a physician-driven uh, process and, and continue to support that, what it has done is created some consistency uh, over time in the midst of the inevitable changes of leadership and administration. If you have several changes in executive leadership, if you don't have this structure, this process, this physician-driven approach, then the the way that call pay is treated almost changes every time administration changes. And that creates constant turmoil and chaos and and can be uh, really a catalyst to to, uh, erosion of of cultural trust. And so what what we found is that by empowering physician leaders uh, to uh, continue to drive this principle-based process over time is it creates confidence and consistency. And that's what this process, uh, I think it's the hallmark of this process that really fosters that that culture of trust. So that's what we've experienced. And I I don't know if you have any, uh, as we kind of wrap up our time together today, um, 
I don't know if you have any thoughts on what you think the future, just generally the future of call pay uh, is across the United States, uh, Dr. Albert. What, what do you do? You have any thoughts on that? Um, I think there will be call pay <laughs> is the future. But to, to to add to what you just said about longevity and durability of the plan, one of the um, inadvertent benefits the way we structured the plan, we deliberately structured it so that it was outside the medical staff structure and outside of the hospital president's office. I mean, his office, his or her office will support the plan, provides administrative support, but doesn't run the plan. It doesn't matter who the hospital president is. And that's something that none of us thought of when we started this. We mostly, it was a matter of getting it off his desk, but We've been through multiple hospital presidents since then, and they show up and say, gee, how do we do call? This is how we do it? Okay. And that's how we do it. They they have input at the call committee and the advisory board levels, but no more than, no really, no more than one vote. Um, You know, they have the same number of votes as everybody else. So I think that, that has helped. Future call pay. So... I think the big thing is, is that call burden should be recognized. And if you want people available on call, you're going to have to pay for that, either in a hospitalist program or with call compensation. Um, our, hosp- you know, they, <clears throat> our hospital, like every hospital in the nation, has seen a trend towards physician employment uh, telemedicine, and nobody knows where telemedicine is going to go eventually. Uh, hospitalist services for medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics, critical care, uh, acute surgical care. Uh, we've got EICU. We have e-infectious disease, all sorts of after-hour support in various modes being paid for in different ways. So, yes, there will always be call compensation. I think imaginative things like the call pay solution will help make that better for hospitals, for frankly, cost containment and simplicity and having a structure that shows that provides continuity and transparency. And for physicians, by making sure they get paid in a reliable, trustworthy manner, in our case, with a third party administrator that makes sure I get my paycheck. I don't have to depend on the hospital to pay me. Um, So continuity, transparency, and flexibility going forward. Because our plan, we've we've modified it multiple times in the last 15 years. We're going to be modifying it again the next 15 years. And who knows what manner we're going to have to alter it in the future. But the way it's structured, we can do it. Um, I'm confident that we will be able to figure a way to adapt to whatever comes to us in the future. Yes. That's great insight, Dr. Oliver. And, you know, for Maxworth, we have certainly uh, enjoyed our relationship over the last 15 years. And uh, certainly uh, you've been uh, a, a great resource for us as we moved and expanded and replicated the plan in various forms across the country. and. Uh, thanks a lot, and we'll um, look forward to visiting with you about the 25th year anniversary. But, uh, well, that was Eddie, good, guys. Thank you, Tom. Hey, we appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Dr. Oliver. Yeah, Susie, appreciate we said it. hello. Yep, I'll watch your email. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Maxworth Insights. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'd like to thank Dr. Oliver for speaking with us today, and we hope his story inspires you to find creative and sustainable solutions to healthcare's biggest challenges.